Welcome to the Dog Liaison Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. On this podcast, we focus on giving guardians of anxious dogs a home. If your dog has reactivity, aggression, separation anxiety, or generalized anxiety, then this podcast is what you have been looking for. We are going to go deep into understanding your dog's anxiety-related disorders. We're also going deep into what it is like to be the guardian of an anxious dog so that you have a sanctuary and a guide to help you to be able to sustain your dog's recovery. I'm a professional dog trainer. At this point, I work exclusively with dogs facing anxiety-related disorders, and I really understand on a deep level how to support you and your anxious dog. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hey there, and welcome to the Dog Liaison Podcast. Today we are talking with Agneta, and she is the guardian of Flora, and she's going to introduce herself in just a moment, but I really think that this is going to be an effective episode for guardians who have been quite studious and really did all of their education, especially if you got your dog as a puppy and you really invested the work ahead of time, thinking like you were setting yourself up for success, um, and then you ended up having a dog that's facing reactivity or separation anxiety or resource guarding or any sort of um, frustration. If that is you, then I think that this discussion is really going to resonate with you. Um, you know, we're here with Agnetic. Would you like to introduce yourself, introduce Flora, tell us where you are uh, in the world and what's Flora's breed and age and all of that? Sure. So my name is Agneta and Flora is my 21 month old Rishla puppy. <laughs> I uh, just did that math the other day. And we are in, well, we're near Toronto, Canada, for people who know where that is. <laughs> and why don't you kind of set the stage for us? How did Flora come to you? What was the story of your beginning together? What did that look like? Yeah, so our story, we could say, began way before our story began, <laughs> because I've been obsessed with dogs since childhood, but never actually had a dog growing up. <laughs> so um, I had some dog substitutes, <laughs> um, like plastic toys that I would drag down the street on a leash. Uh, but I always knew that I'd get a dog eventually when the time was right. And that wasn't for a while. It was when I was done my master's and had a stable job. And um, it worked out that my company's remote. So I was also working remotely. So then that felt like the right time. And uh, I did put a lot of thought into the process. As you mentioned, I put a lot of thought into thinking about what breed I want to get, and then which breeder I'd go to. And I did the best I could with the information I had at the time. Uh, and in particular, I was always interested in training. <laughs> so that's something I really spent a lot of time on is, you know, what to do with the puppy so that I end up with the perfect dog. <laughs> uh, and of course, there is a world of a difference between, you know, watching endless YouTube videos and web webinars, and then actually getting the puppy and, you know, implementing <laughs> the things with a living being. So uh, despite all my preparation, I ended up a little bit disappointed when things weren't so perfect uh, and my puppy wasn't responding the way I saw in the video clips. <laughs> um, I mean, she didn't even want to have treats half the time. So I was like, how am I going to make you do things? <laughs> so tell us about, you said that you had done a little bit of research ahead before you even brought Flora home, right? Mm -hmm. 
what it was that research, what did you actually, I know you studied the breeds and picked the right breed for you. Um, what did that research actually look like? What were you typing into Google? Oof. <laughs> so many things because the research actually began six years before I got the dog. So um, in terms of breed, like I was set on a visual, I actually at this point don't know if visual actually is the right breed for me, but at the time, you know, I wanted you know, very sociable and energetic. And I, I mean, I do still love all those things, but, um, but yeah, at the time it was just, I actually mostly found people I liked to learn from and then just listened to what they had to say. So I wasn't necessarily seeking specific information so much as, you know, once I found certain YouTube channels, which did include yours, <laughs> I just watched all the videos um so it did end up and I did also watch some channels that I, I don't like so much now and felt like a waste of time um but yeah so mostly it was YouTube at the time because of how I learned so I'm very audiovisual, and so that is my preferred medium I wasn't reading so many books at that time I have been more now but um yeah so it was the very first search I did was I think just you know how to train a puppy and then that brought up the very popular and awesome Kiko Pup channel. And just, I really did work my way through all of the videos. So I can't really overemphasize how many, um, I think it was hundreds of hours by the time I actually got the puppy uh, because I did actually start learning about training, so to speak, six years before I even got the puppy. And then I really went full tilt for that last year. Uh -huh. before. Um, so yeah, perhaps not specific search terms so much as, you know, who do I want to learn from and all the things they have to say. Yeah, I, I find myself when I'm researching, I may start at a focal point. It may be like, tell me about visual puppies, right? Um, but then you kind of get drawn into a channel and you kind of go into through the binge, right? And you mm -hmm. just consume, consume, consume. Yes. And <laughs> I do this in a lot of facets of my life. I've definitely done it with dog behavior a lot. Um, but especially when you have a puppy and perhaps it's your first dog at that stage, you're like, I can't consume enough. I'll just keep, I'll mm -hmm. just keep learning. I'll just keep absorbing because I mean, what's the harm, right? Was there ever a time like in the first, let's approximate the first three ish months that you had Flora, right? That early, early puppyhood that you got her. Cause you got her at eight weeks. Is that correct? Nine weeks. 10 weeks. Okay. Nine, yeah. Nine, but yeah. So when the first like three ish approximately months that you had her, what were your main objectives? Uh, I'm sure like you were working on the sits and the downs and the whatevers, but what was the objective when you were actually training? What was the bigger goal? Ultimately, I think I wanted the perfect dog <laughs> if we're just talking about broad goals. But our goals shifted very fast because I only had her for two months when I signed up for your program. <laughs> um, so it's more just in the very early days, I would say. Um, my objectives were actually very oriented towards, you know, building resilience and building a dog who was um, going to be functional. So I was focusing on teaching, you know, separation and I, I, already had learned by that time that, you know, maybe the sits and the downs aren't the most important things. So I had already learned the idea that, you know, you're trying to teach them concepts and we're teaching them the concept of training and we're teaching them, um, you know, like, like let's focus on the things that are important for the puppy, like socialization. Let's, 
you know, teach them you know, potty training. So those really were my main objectives. And I was, you know, right from the get go looking for little things like, oh, is there counter surfing happening? So like, like, let's work on that right away. So I don't strictly feel that my priorities were different than they would be now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't, I was still very new and I was still learning how to do it myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to teach something that I'm just learning. Um, and yeah, the whole idea, I mean, even now, I don't think I now know how to socialize a puppy. I still think <laughs> that's just such a big topic. So, you know, was I going about it right? I don't have no idea. <laughs> so those were my priorities, but they shifted very quickly in terms of what my focus became, especially because of the reactivity. I started dropping all of the, you know, I, I did want to teach her, you know, a downstay and whatever, because I thought, you know, tricks would be fun and a dog who listens to me and does what I say would be great. <laughs> but very quickly, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't even go out into the world with her. <laughs> yeah, that kind of, that's a great segue into my next question, which is like, when did you first notice that she was experiencing behavioral problems or stress or like, what was the first observations that crossed her mind that you're like, I don't think she's responding to the environment and life in the same way that I had anticipated. Like, what did that look like? In a sense, it was pretty much right away. <laughs> well, let's say within 40 to 48 hours, right? So, cause she is a very adaptable dog and always was a very adaptable puppy. So it didn't take her long to settle into her new home. So that kind of like, she appears so calm, <laughs> disappeared within 48 hours. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> what is this puppy? What is this shark really? Um, so she was always very excitable and emotional and I love her for it now. <laughs> uh, she's very expressive uh, and enthusiastic and now I can say hilarious. <laughs> but at the time, you know, those same qualities that make her the amazing dog that she is and continues to become made her a little bit of a handful. So very quickly, I would say... <laughs> that I was noticing that she was, you know, super impulsive and determined and had lots of opinions that she wanted to share. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so in terms of her reactivity, it was also kind of always there because it it does come from a more socially oriented, like wanting to interact perspective. And her reader told me that she was a very social puppy. I was actually choosing between two and she told me this one's the one that's more social. And I said, yes, please give me the one that's more social because I don't, I don't really know what that meant, right? Um, I mean, we weren't maybe weren't meaning the same thing even when we were saying social. It was just like, oh, a dog who likes people and likes dogs, that's great. Um, but very quickly, it was apparent that it was actually her, the thing that interested her the most in the world <laughs> was the opportunity to have social interactions, particularly with novel dogs and people. So that continues to be a thing sometimes, but of course not nearly as well. Um, so I did notice that quite early, basically just her level of interest in other people and other dogs. Uh, in terms of when I started considering it a problem, so to speak, probably within the first two weeks, uh, just on our walks. And especially uh, we did sign up for puppy class and that made it very obvious. Um, Again, in the first puppy class, she was very calm and relaxed, or appeared so. Uh, and I thought I was doing the right, right thing, right? She was hanging out on her mat, and I was feeding her treats for relaxing and engaging with me and, you know, ignoring the environment, or that's what I thought I was doing. 
but by the second class, she was at the end of her leash and barking the entire time. And all of the peanut butter in the world wouldn't bring her attention back to me. <laughs> um, and then the same kind of thing on walks, right? It kind of started off calm and sniffy, and then it quickly became the, you know, stiff staring, pulling on leash, lunging, bouncing up and down, barking, biting at her leash, biting at my clothes, <laughs> snapping at my face. <laughs> She's a high jumper. So, <laughs> so I think, yeah pretty early on. (laughs) I think culture really tells us that like reactivity is going to be Mm fear-based. Reactivity is going to be shyness. Reactivity is going to, there's going to be a negative association, right? That's sort of the connotation that reactivity gets. But I think that especially when they're puppies, if we have a dog that is facing high arousal and it's not so much that she is you know, scared of everything that's coming her way. In fact, she wants to interact and she wants to like learn about everything that's she's encountering, but it's overwhelming to her central nervous system. Right. And so she's consuming in the same way that you consumed a bunch of YouTube channels, she consumed a lot of the world, right. She just intake, intake, intake. And I think sometimes culture can tell us that we have a puppy who's experiencing hyperactivity, high arousal, that the solution then is just teach the dog obedience and just put the dog in a stay. And just, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta give the dog more commands and more structure, right? The solution is just always give structure. So did you feel a pressure to do that? Or like, did you always know that, well, maybe that's not necessarily the route we need to take? What was coming up for you in those early stages? Yeah. Well, in the early stages, I definitely was not thinking of her behavior as reactive. I I don't think I had a word for it. Again, it was happening really fast for me. I was just like, "Ah, (laughs) I don't know what to do with this puppy. But yeah, I definitely had that um, perspective that reactivity would be something when the dog's showing fear or displaying aggression and they're seeking distance. Um, So I thought of her as very overly friendly I did think, you know, she has a low tolerance for frustration. She's impulsive. And I think those things were true, so to speak. Um, But I also thought that she was very confident, like overly confident. And that's something that I have very much changed my mind about that. (laughs) And so I didn't really feel any pressure in any way because I didn't really know what I was looking at. I, I knew I just didn't want her to be jumping and lunging and, and I never had the idea of the obedient because of the people I had been listening to in preparation for her. I think from the beginning, I wanted her to just be well and just be able to sniff without pulling. And yeah, so no, not quite pressure in terms of obedience, but um, I did feel a lot of pressure in terms of just, I just felt really embarrassed. <laughs> and scared it was both um because and honestly by the time she was three four months old I I hated walking her on leash like it's a strong word but I felt that way and I wasn't taking I I avoided it as much as possible so I would take her you know to quiet like nature spaces and have her on a long line and have her run around so she was getting out but in terms of just going around the neighborhood I was very nervous about ever running into dogs and people especially with the biting that she would do towards me and that did scare me because no she wasn't hurting me she was very methodically picking up my even if I was wearing leggings or something she knew how to pick up the fabric and just hang off my sleeve and snap at my face but it was still scary to have that kind of biting directed at you, sharp little teeth, lots of holes in my clothes and people staring. 
when it would happen. So yes, I was totally embarrassed and I didn't have the idea that I should be, you know, punishing her or yelling at her or anything. So essentially I'm just there being like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> just, and yeah, sometimes I might ask her to sit because it was the only thing I knew how to do, <laughs> but I never felt like I had direction or that I knew what I was doing by any means. So I heard you say twice that, uh, when she was, when you go out for those walks that you were scared, mm-hmm. what were you actually scared of? I was scared of the possibility of there being actual aggression, well, actual aggression, <laughs> maybe not the best way to put it, but, um, yeah, something where she might hurt me or someone physically. Like I was concerned about it taking a different direction. She also was very shark bitey in the house, um, which we did. I did figure out how to manage in the first few days, but I, I had been scared of her. Like I would run into a room and close the door and just be like, get away from me. And then I, you know, later she would calm down and be the sweet little puppy, but I was just like, is she just does she have some screws loose is she is this okay um so that's yeah I think I was scared of it and I was scared of it tipping over so um like into something more fear-based or aggression-based because I had also read or heard or something that that could happen that you know it starts out as like frustration friendly and could turn into frustration I don't like the thing um so that was also a fear of mine so within about two three months of bringing her home you're noticing that she just has overreactions. You feel a little lost or like, uh, even after consuming all of this information, I know that I'm not supposed to punish her. I know that quote unquote obedience is not quite the answer, but also I don't really know what the answer is. So you're just standing in the middle of the street, like lost a deer in a headlights. So you did end up joining the RP. Yeah. I'd love to hear, let's say between the time that you joined the RP when she was like what four months old or so to the year mark. So about eight months, what techniques did you implement? What uh, techniques worked for you? What techniques did not work for you? Tell me a little bit about that. In terms of when we first started, (laughs) um, before the actual program started, you had some introductory videos. And I just remember one of them said uh, to not pull on your dog's leash. (laughs) So that was the very first thing I implemented. And that was pretty major because what was actually happening (laughs) with the shark biting in the street is that I didn't know what to do. She wasn't taking treats. Um, Not that I would have used them very strategically, but just to be like, hey, eat food. (laughs) So what would happen is I'd kind of see her fixate on a dog or person and I could just see, not that I really knew specific body language cues that I'm looking for, but you could tell that it's, she's getting tense and escalating and I I know where this is headed. And so what I would do is try to move her (laughs) physically with the leash. Just like, I didn't know what to do. So I would pull her. That's actually when she would turn around and bite the leash and bite me. So that was a very clear, (laughs) I'm pushing her over the edge. So the first thing I did that did help a lot was not do that anymore. (laughs) So it's like, oh, okay. I'm just supposed to let her stare. Okay. I I will just let her stare. Um, And so she didn't bite me anymore after that. So that was the first thing. Um, Then overall, I just think that it's not really one thing that does it. I think, and you you discuss this and this is how you teach it, but a very holistic approach that has multiple elements, some that are kind of more explicitly working on and some that just kind of happen on their own in the background while you're doing the other things. Uh, And so 
what worked in the end, um, well, in terms of foundation is making sure that the puppy and the dog's needs are being met. And so in other words, that's the enrichment piece that we start talking about right at the beginning of the program. Um, and it's so important. I completely agree with that. How can we expect healthy behavior from anyone, whether it's a dog or a person or a cat or whoever, if their needs aren't being met? Um, so definitely looking at things like physical health, uh, which for Flora, there was actually an issue. She had a chipped tooth and so was experiencing pain more than likely. And so I do believe that was a factor as well. Um, so that's something that we got <laughs> checked out right at the beginning of the program, found the chipped tooth, um, had that removed. Um, and I believe that helped with some of the more nipping around the house that we were experiencing after that was taken out, <laughs> understandably. Um, then on, on top of things, you know, nutrition, quality of sleep, opportunities to express species and breed specific behaviors and all those things. And my personal favorite enrichment, if I could only pick one thing um, and that I see makes a huge difference for flora is the trigger-free sniffy walks in nature with as much freedom of movement as is possible, depending where you are, whether that's a long line or off leash, if that's okay. Um, so that's definitely my favorite. Um, but then also learning management skills, right, from the get-go. Um, and I do believe management skills play more of a role than just management. I think there is a lot going on there too, and you can't fully separate out learning and managing, but, but really, trying to focus on learning skills that are pre-trained and pre-practiced with the dog that you can implement in situations where it's not realistic to try to effectively train through it, where you kind of know that this is too much and the dog risks going over threshold. So really getting those down ahead of time and really not thinking of it as an afterthought, but being proactive about it. And it's just like we pre-teach the concept of this is a treat scatter, or you're going to be eating a handful of treats out of my hand <laughs> as we walk away, or, um, you know, you're going to stand behind me. It's like one of the things you taught or whether, you know, jump up on something, put your paws up on something, things like that, like have it be something that's been pre-trained and practiced so that you can use it, <laughs> even if it's a form of distraction just in those moments. And then in terms of training, of course, <laughs> or things you'd consider training, there's a lot of pieces there too where I was seeing the most progress in the long-term was um, that desensitization component. So that's really, <laughs> as you teach, you know, finding the dog's threshold based on their body language signals and learning when you need to manage or when this is more of a, like an active training, you know, counter conditioning type approach or when the dog can just like look and dismiss very easily without any kind of intervention and then allowing the dog in those moments to find something else in the environment. So whether that's like something to sniff or a stick to chew or a puddle to splash in or just something else where they're just kind of like, oh yeah, a thing. I'm doing something more important here. And those like finding those opportunities and setting up those opportunities. So finding a park where you can get that distance so that you can orchestrate <laughs> rather than just kind of relying on it happening on its own. I found that to be very, very helpful. Lastly, and this is one of those things that you don't really train for, <laughs> but that just kind of happens throughout this process is the relationship building 
And that's something I've really noticed lately. So we're more than a year out. So everything that you do there, really, it's like whether you're hiking together or you're training or you're just playing or whatever you do is building and strengthening that bond. And that is something that only comes through time and through positive interactions. And I did find uh, within the last few months, especially there have been some key moments where I just noticed that Flora actually looks to me (laughs) when she is not confident. Maybe she'll actually choose to be by my side or just be like, what are we doing now? Like, so, and that felt really good because that's not something I explicitly trained for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just started happening. She just started being like, oh yeah, you, <laughs> you can help me. So I really love that reframe. And I don't think my brain had ever put it in those terms of we have our explicit training and then we have our implicit training. I love that structure, that reframe of it. And you're exactly right. Like you can do all the explicit, you know, be very methodical with your enrichment plan and make sure you're meeting all the needs. You can do the look and dismiss. You can make sure that you, like you said, are structuring the environment so that you're far away from another trigger that you can actually appropriately do desensitization. You can do all those explicit formal things and also there are going to be these implicit things like building a connection with your dog. And one of the things that I get asked all the time is like, you know, I just want to build a better bond with my dog. I just want to build a better relationship with my dog and I want more trust. And a lot of times people will Google that. In fact, I have videos even on my YouTube channel that are like how to build trust with your dog. Right. And the irony of it is, is that there's not like a technique for that. It's not an explicit thing. That is the result of explicit things. Right. That is the, you know, accumulation of effort and connection and time and patience and having a dialogue with your dog and really understanding what her needs are and what her behaviors are and giving her opportunities to learn what your needs and your behaviors are as well. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why I talk so much about having a dialogue with your dog, because then as a result of that, you will find that she's looking to you for support when she's feeling, you know, a lack of confidence or a little iffy on a situation. And I love that observation that you make with her because, you know, a lot of times we think that a confident dog is giving eye contact, that a confident dog that is doing the right thing is looking up at their guardian and being like, what should I do? Right. And the irony is that, especially even in the science, we find that there is data to support that a confident dog's not going to look at their guardian. The confident mm-hmm. dog's like, I got it. I know you're yeah. there. I have my peripherals. I can smell you. I know you're in the environment. I don't need to stare at you to figure it out. I can problem solve this. But what we do find is that once a dog is feeling a little iffy about something and needs that information, if their guardian has been there to provide information previously, if their guardian has a history of filling in the gaps when they don't feel like they have all that information, they will turn up to their guardian and say, I'm missing some pieces of information. Can you fill in the gaps for me? I need a little bit more support here. And that's not something you train. (laughs) That's not something you even like formally treat and reinforce in the sense of rewarding. Mm -hmm. It's something that happens very organically and by having a support system in place for your dog. Right. So can you talk about another implicit result? So another thing other than like having her look at you when she's you know, maybe a little less confident in a situation. Um, can you t- speak to something that you have found that has been a byproduct or an, you know, a result that you didn't necessarily train for, but has been a result of your explicit formal intention? 
Well, with Flora specifically, and um, so yeah, I'm not <laughs> going to speak for other dogs, but for Flora specifically, there was definitely this lack of confidence element. Um, and I do think that there's a lot of things that go into confidence building and we haven't even done all of them. Like I actually think that she struggles a bit with proprioception and things like that. And we haven't even gone down that path, but just in terms of the social aspect, because that's sort of what her reactivity is social based, of course. <laughs> um, for her, and, and it's always been dogs more. It's always been bigger dogs more. So even though, you know, it's from this, like, I want to go approach you and interact with you and play with you and be silly. Uh, what I was observing um, in her interactions is that she, like when she had the opportunity off leash, for example, she was very much like a like rush right in there kind of dog. And then all of a sudden she'd be like, oh, like falling all over herself, kind of just like, oh, like I'm tiny, don't hurt me. So it wasn't really confident behavior. I think she was seeking out these interact or proximity as like a way to gather information about the dog or the person and particularly dog, particularly larger dogs. So I don't think that she was confident. Um, I think she was just not sure how to handle being at that distance and, and trying to learn to gather information from that distance. Uh, so actually for her, one of the things that we did, and again, everything kind of ties in, you can't separate it out, but I did put more explicit effort into finding appropriate playmates for her. Um, and by appropriate, I wanted adults who are larger and calm. <laughs> um, and, you know, cause she does enough of the rough puppy, silly play. <laughs> um, so really just finding those opportunities for her to spend time with those dogs, I believe helped. Um, again, it's not one of those things that, you know, she plays with the dog and all of a sudden she's better and we're doing so many other things at the same time. So, but I do think that it's reasonable to believe that as she had those opportunities, perhaps that was also implicitly helping with the reactivity because she was gaining confidence and she was just like, that's fine. I have big dog friends and yeah. So I love that. I love that. This episode is brought to you by my signature coaching program, the Recovering Rover Program for Anxious Dogs. One dog, one million phobias. Reactivity, noise sensitivity, separation anxiety, generalized anxiety, and the list goes on and on. If your dog has multiple anxiety-related disorders, then you know the awful stress of feeling trapped in your own home. Having a dog with anxiety does not mean sacrificing your own mental health. The RRP is the most comprehensive program that coaches guardians on how to treat their dog's anxiety. This is a six month group coaching program dedicated to making you an expert in desensitizing your dog's triggers and making your dog feel more calm and comfortable in the world. For all the info on the Recovering Rover program and to see whether you and your dog are a good fit, go to getacalmdog.com backslash RRP to learn more. And now back to the episode. So fast forward to now, I'd love to hear sort of what obstacles do you still encounter? What obstacles have you worked through? What is life with Flora as you approach her almost, almost two year mark um, and definitely a year post RRP? What does life look like for you right now? For Flora, I wouldn't consider her reactive anymore. <laughs> Not that it's something that you like a dog is or isn't. <laughs> or a person is or isn't. Um, 
so yeah, let's say it's a sliding scale. But in terms of when I go out with her for a walk, and again, this didn't happen overnight. At some point, I just noticed that I was relaxed and she seemed fine and that we felt that we could handle situations that came towards us. And hey, look, I stopped and talked to this person and Flora didn't <laughs> jump in bark. And so um, I wouldn't consider her reactive now because we can walk around the neighborhood confidently. Uh, we can go down trails and I'm not stressed every time I see a dog or a person. We can pull over and... <laughs> Yeah, at that point, we're still doing a bit of like, look at that type things because, you know, we're in closer proximity. But yeah, so in that sense, um, I would consider her recovered. <laughs> but we're constantly working through <laughs> just expanding on those skills. Uh, but And our priorities have also shifted a bit towards other things. Like now I am a bit more interested in her movement. So that's like a newer topic for us. Um, so in terms of her movement, it's just little things that I've noticed that, um, you know, she thinks she's a little bit bigger than she is. So she gets nervous around what she perceives as tight spaces. You know, there's ample room. You know, she's like, I couldn't possibly reach that thing. It's so, so she shows a lot of anxious type behaviors or conflicted behaviors, I should say, when, um, you know, she wants a ball and it's in this inaccessible mm. location, which is perfectly accessible, but she just doesn't really seem to know where her body ends um and also I've noticed well, it's not really new but it's starting to concern me more now that we have more time to work on other things um is that she really runs up and down the stairs and is not even capable of taking the stairs slowly um I definitely have noticed from you know I'm starting to learn a bit more about this so I don't want to say anything <laughs> that's inaccurate but I'm noticing that she does lack a bit of hind end awareness so we're starting to try to work on a bit of like hey you can move your back legs independently from your front you know just the you know pivoting on a platform and so um so that's more just what I'm noticing that she doesn't seem confident in where she's placing her body and I think that does feed into an overall confident animal and so as part of, I suppose, the reactivity quest still, you know, to, and in general, confidence in life, I, I think it would be important uh, to work on that more. And it's something that I am interested in working with someone professional. Well, definitely well. for like rear end awareness and body awareness. I always recommend Sarah at uh, sit, stay, squat. Okay. She's amazing. So that's for the okay. whole audience. I love her, but I think, I think the summation is that when you are starting off your journey with your activity, obviously you're, you're focused so much on getting to that, being able to walk down the, the street and being able to have a conversation like that is the objective, mm -hmm. right? And inherently, as you're working through that objective, you're becoming more aware of your dog and you're seeing things about her that others are overlooking that most 99.9% .9 of the dog guardian population wouldn't even care about within their dog. Right. But you're building such a level of intimacy with your dog that when you fast forward a year, what ends up happening is you really look for these higher learning opportunities to just continue to expand your dog's world and continue to expand your dog's mental health and physical health for that matter in, in their, her life. Right. And one of the things that I see with my guardians is that they will start off just having like the main objective of, gosh, I Jenna, I just really want to walk down my street without having to hyperscan, without feeling like I'm going to have a panic attack in the middle of getting my mail every day. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And the outcome when I see them a year, two years, three years later, is that they have such a connection with their dog that they understand the necessity and they actually enjoy getting into that depth and that, like I said, higher level learning with their dog. And they see the connection through their activity as well. Like you said, you can see how her becoming more confident about her body and going in through tight spaces, how that's indirectly affecting her confidence and therefore indirectly affecting her reactivity towards other dogs. Right. Mm -hmm. But really the objective is just to continue building that connection with your dog, just to continue expanding her world and understanding the necessity for continued learning in her life. That's something that most guardians, quite frankly, apart from like reactive dog guardians, most guardians in the universe don't ever get to that point. They teach their puppy for six to eight weeks. They're going to take their dog to the class and they're going to love it. And it's going to be fabulous. And then the puppy turns a year old and it's like, okay, she's done all the learning in her life. She'll never need to learn anything else ever again, (laughs) like full stop. And I actually think that it's a gift that you get to have a reactive dog, especially one that you start with so early, because then for the rest of her life, you get to continue to fine tune and to polish and can build that connection more and more and more. I love that. Can you share a little bit of, I think you had mentioned her shark biting moment, which I, I very distinctly remember you joining being like, she shark bites <laughs> and she shark bites at the leash. She shark bites at my clothes. She shark bites at this. And she's not like intentionally, like aggressively attacking me, mm-hmm. but every once in a while, her little puppy teeth are hurting. And moreover, I just don't want it to accelerate because especially when they're that young, we really want to teach them that bite inhibition. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're really aware of how interacting with human skin is different and is a different experience than if they're biting their litter mates. Right. And I remember you taking, like watching the video in the curriculum. It's one of the first videos in the curriculum, which is like, you need to take your dog to the vet, (laughs) take your dog to the vet, take your dog to the vet, take your dog to the vet. And you wrote me and you're like, I'm so grateful that I did because she had that chipped tooth and we wouldn't Mm -hmm. have known otherwise. And you were able to really resolve, resolve quote unquote, um, her biting large part by Mm -hmm. just recovering her teeth. Right. What's another aha moment that you had within your journey um, that was like a light bulb that just went off and you're like, oh my gosh. It's sort of an aha moment, but it was also not in the sense of that it had never occurred to me so much as that I felt, I, I guess in retrospect, I needed permission almost to think this way. Um, and one was if I can point to a specific video, you have something like a dogs can say no. (laughs) Um, Dogs can say no. Dogs don't have to act in a prescribed way. You don't have to act in a prescribed way. (laughs) You know, there's no rule about your dog must act like this in this situation. And if not, (laughs) you're a terrible owner and you haven't trained your dog. (laughs) Um, So I think that I mean, that's a very big topic and a very big aha moment, but kind of internalizing that, which took time. It, didn't, it was not overnight. And I still don't actually think I fully internalized it, to be honest, as mm-hmm. someone who myself is like recovering from being quite judgmental <laughs> about things like my dog's behavior. But yeah, so that's been a really big shift for me. Um, I've used to just get caught up in the shoulds and should be and it's like, where did those ideas come from? 
I didn't come up with them, right? So someone said, yeah, you should do it this way. I have to say that was, that's an excellent aha moment. Like that is a really, really good aha moment because it's one of those things where you're like, dogs can say no, you hear it and you immediately get it. Like you get the principle. You're like, yeah, of course they can say no the same way that humans can say no. Um, you get the principle, but we're so deep rooted in dog culture that Mm -hmm. we command our dogs and our dogs do as we obey. And so you actually, even if it's a principle that you understand and you like agree with, Mm-hmm. you're right. You have to really internalize it. You have to make it a deep rooted belief at that point. Yeah. And at that stage, that's, there's reconditioning going on there, right? There's a lot of reconditioning because for years and years, you've been subliminally conditioned by culture Oh yeah, just through the language of command and obey, right. Or just through the perfect dog. That's the perfect dog. Exactly. Like just like been, we're the perfect human. <laughs> exactly. We've just been conditioned without us even being aware of it, that mm-hmm. the dogs are going to do as we say. I was actually, uh, if we could digress just a second, this is a good yeah. little story. Um, I was just recently at, uh, like a social networking event and I was talking to some therapists who were like, therapist for humans. Right. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about our different like professions and how they kind of line up a little bit when we're talking about mental health in general. Mm -hmm. And I had mentioned that like, one of the things that we equip all of our dogs with is consent. And we say like the dog can tell, you, no, I don't want you to touch me. And they can also change their minds. Like they can start off by saying, yes, you can pet me. And then three seconds later, change their minds and say, actually, I don't want you to touch me anymore. And when I said that my therapist friend was like, Oh my God. She's like, can I tell you that I feel like an awful person? Cause I had never thought to apply that to animals before. <laughs> She's like, this is a principle that we teach all of our humans in therapy that you're in control of your body and no one gets to violate your personal space without your permission. But I had never thought about reframing it for our dogs or for our cats or for whomever. Right. And I think that if you're an audience member right now, if you're listening to this and you're like at that stage where you understand the principle of letting your dog tell, you no, you understand the principle of having your dog give consent, but you're still working on the internal belief patterns that have been, that you have to recondition, just know that that's okay. And that doesn't make you a bad guardian. You're going to probably slip up. There's going to be a couple of times where you accidentally violate your dog. You're going to accidentally, you know, touch them, or you're going to accidentally ignore one of their nose. And that's not your fault, right? It's not your fault that you are accidentally tripping up. It's more about recognizing that and going, how can I be better next time? And understanding that you're rewiring your, your own behavior patterns and how you show up in your relationship with your dog. Um, Aggie, I'd love to hear how, like, what came up for you when I was saying all that? Like, what was, what was sitting in your brain when I was saying all this? Well, first of all, I'm very, I, I just find this topic is very <laughs> moving. So I definitely felt a little moved by that story. I mean, I think it is a big part of it, I think, for me, is how the things that we learn about our dogs through like working with them in this way, like in a more empowerment based and all the, and, you know, needs based approach is how that reflects back onto us as humans mm. um and that that part does definitely get me very emotional because I think that's just been such a big part of <laughs> working with Flora has been just working on me in parallel just kind of being like oh <laughs> I need to implement these principles in my own life towards myself and towards the people I care about 
Um, so, <laughs> oh my gosh, I just want to repeat that. And I want to put it on like a bumper sticker and I'm going to put it on a billboard because you're absolutely <laughs> right. Like when we're thinking about, and this is a, a topic that comes a lot up in our RP. In fact, it was Shelly, the other RP coach and myself, were just talking to a guardian about this in, in the teams that like, Yes, you're learning these principles as they apply to your dog, but they're life skills for you as an individual, mm-hmm. as a person that shows up in the universe, right? And if you really take the time to understand dog behavior and understand your relationship with recovering your dog's mental health and, you know, preventing them from experiencing excessive emotional responses unnecessarily, if you really take the time to work at that, a byproduct, one of the implicit Results mm-hmm. of that will be that you will change as an individual and how you show up in the world will also be different. So that was, that's a, I hands <laughs> across the board, stuck the landing. Love that. Okay. So if we can like shift gears to the polar opposite as well, let's take a little like bipolar. Can you share a, a particular low moment in your, in the recovery journey that maybe it wasn't even that low for floor, but it felt low for you. Mm-hmm. And what was that experience like? I don't think I can pick one that stands out because we've had many, (laughs) Uh, but the common theme that I noticed is actually just as you put it, um, which is that our low phase is very much correlated with my own mental state. Um, So, (laughs) so it's when my needs aren't being met, then things that I might find either manageable or maybe even funny or endearing (laughs) or suddenly annoying. And I don't know how to respond to my dog kindly. So, um, yeah, definitely (laughs) in those moments, I'm less able to cope with those emotional challenges and less able to make decisions that I'm proud of. So in terms of working with those or working through those, uh, I have learned not to. (laughs) Um, And this is actually, you know, again, something that I learned from you and I took it to heart really, which is if you, among other things, if you are not ready to work on something, don't work on it. And I have taken that possibly to, I mean, it felt extreme at the time, like now it's not, but I I definitely had moments feeling guilty about this, but there have been times that I've taken weeks, maybe a month. I don't know. I would lose track of time. I just wasn't doing any kind of what I would consider reactivity training. Of course, we're still doing stuff. We're still getting her out and, you know, meeting her needs and whatever. So it's not like all things stop, but I'm not going out trying to encounter triggers or, or something. And, and I have never, ever, ever, ever regretted any of those breaks um, because every time when I went back to it, without exception, I was better and she was better. And I, I don't know, maybe there's some consolidation or something going on. I don't know, I don't have the explanation for why, but she always did better than where we left off after taking those breaks. And I took the breaks for me, not for her. Thank you so much for that share, because I think that it it gives permission to other guardians to also take care of themselves. Kind of like you spoke to a little bit in the RP, we have a three-step rule, right? Is the environment ready? Are you ready? Is Rover ready? And if all three of those are not a yes, we don't train. Right. And ironically, Rover, the dog is the last question, right? Because it doesn't matter if your dog is technically ready. If your perception and your 
mental well-being is not at its best capacity, then you're not going to show up in that training session as effectively. And quite frankly, it's going to impede your patience. It's going to impede your perception of what's going on. Kind of like you said, some things that you thought would be funny or endearing are suddenly irritating and you're like, ah, <laughs> right. And it's, it's just catapulting more stress. It's just yeah. adding, 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 adding. So I think that hearing another guardian say like, I have never regretted taking those breaks. I have never regretted taking a whole month off training and not formally thinking about recovering her reactivity necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, because every single time I come back, it's better. That is giving permission to other guardians to also do the same thing. It's okay for us to put on hold. You're not like, you're not making your dog suffer more. If anything, training when all three of those variables are not a yes, when training, when all three of those variables are not ready, that can indirectly affect your dog negatively more than if you just took the the week, the month, the whatever off. Right. Uh, So thank you very much for that. I think that's absolutely beautiful. So since graduating the RFP, we've stayed in contact and I know that you have Mm -hmm. done a lot of research and you've kind of like dug deeper into (laughs) the world of dog behavior, right? I'd love to hear sort of what education you've done and more specifically, um, how has post RFP life changed some of your beliefs or your perspectives? How has it enhanced your life with Flora? I have very much gone deep and I'm currently in the midst of just so many things swirling in my head. So, (laughs) so I don't even know if I can really be (laughs) super coherent about this. Um, But yeah, I've dug down several tangents, like one being um, the more like evolutionary, like ethological kind of, you know, understanding of trying to understand dogs more as like a species, like what is a dog? what is a dog when you remove humans? (laughs) What is a dog, you know, when they're free around humans, but not living indoors (laughs) or, you know what I mean? Like living um, under someone's ownership, (laughs) so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then also, like I said, I'm interested in learning more and very new (laughs) to this, but I um, am interested in kind of like the body and the movement and health, health and, um, you know, what does that look like? Like, what is healthy movement? What is healthy structure? Again, I do not know very much about this, but I find it fascinating. And I find it uh, very interesting to have learned how often, for instance, behavioral problems are linked to pain of some sort, especially joint related and muscular and that kind of thing. And I find that very tragic, <laughs> um, how, how common that is and how often it goes unaddressed and instead working at the behavioral symptoms um, when an animal is the same with like not having your emotional needs met right um, you're not having your physical needs met uh, so many many tangents <laughs> uh, so in terms of where it's put us I mean it's put me definitely in a place like I said where <laughs> I have a big swirl of things going on in my head and I think it's going to take years <laughs> for me to really come through or maybe I'll never get there I don't know (laughs) maybe it's um the more I learn the more I know that I don't know but the more I also know that people who do know (laughs) maybe also are still learning so um yeah I think I'm gaining an appreciation that behavior is extremely complex 
Uh, and, and it makes sense. I mean, we just have to look at our own behavior and yeah, we love to have an explanation for everything, but we can't even explain our own decisions and actions and choices in any given moment. So never mind trying to do that for another person or another species. So that's sort of where I am right now. It's just a big world of, <laughs> yeah. I want to touch on that. Cause you had mentioned like the more I know, the more it feels like I, the more aware I am of what I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, that I can tell you, even as a trainer, even working with dogs for my entire life, I feel that like mm-hmm. one of the things that I see in my communication with other dog trainers or other dog professionals is that the people who really spend the time to consume in-depth information are so much more willing and so much more excited to by saying, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, right? Because it, it really is once you consume so much information, you realize how many things are context specific. You realize how many things are need investigation or individualized to the dog or to the breed or to the, whatever the experience. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you just like, as a coach, I show up and I feel like so much more empowered when I can say, you know, I really don't know what that means for your dog. I really, we're going to have to run some experiments. We're going to have to find out because as you consume so much information, you start to realize like, this could be any number of things going on. I mean, this could be 15,000 different factors happening right now. We really have to do experiments to find out. And I find that just as like an audience member, if you're running into the same experience where you're consuming a lot of information and in one way it is helpful because you're like, look at me, I'm educated. I know these things. (laughs) But on the other hand, it also makes you feel a little like, okay, well then shoot. Or how do I apply that to my dog? And what do I know to be true about my dog? I don't think that it's safe for you to stay in that stage forever. We do want you to become more expert in your dog for sure, but also accept that that's kind of part of the fun of it. And that's inherently going to be a result, right? Um, As you consume more information and you learn more options and you learn how unique behavior, dog behavior can be, you're inevitably going to find out that there are things that you just won't know unless you run the experiment and you ask your dog. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm such a, I always push that slogan. I don't know. Ask your dog. I don't know. Ask your dog, right. Go back to the data, pull up your training log, which is not always fun. We don't always want to look at our, da- our training log. We don't always want to look at our data, but that's where you will find how to individualize it to your dog, right? Yeah. So what would you say to another guardian who is quite the researcher as well? And they are like you, they consumed a lot of information. Uh, they've gone down so many rabbit holes, but they, on the whole, are fairly newer into their reactivity recovery. So they're maybe only been training for a couple of months or so, uh, or they've been training for a while, but they weren't really using effective methods. And now they're just starting to be more effective. What would you say to someone who's at that stage? Yeah, what I would say is kind of a recap (laughs) of everything we've talked about today. But uh, first of all, uh, you have my full empathy. (laughs) Um, There are dogs who are way more challenging than Flora ever was. So (laughs) I completely appreciate that. And even so, Flora was not easy for me. So I can only imagine. And I understand everyone is busy and people don't go out getting a dog (laughs) because they are looking for a project necessarily in most cases. (laughs) So 
I get it. It's overwhelming. Um, and the first thing I would say is just to cut yourself some slack because I have been, and I still ride the guilt train sometimes. <laughs> so we have to, this is something you have to kind of remind yourself of periodically, but um, definitely cut yourself some slack. Behavior is very complex. And um, like we've said, uh, as dog guardians, and especially in our kind of Western society, we have been sold an idea, literally sold through marketing, <laughs> um, the idea of a perfect pet, just like the idea of the perfect us or the perfect partner or the perfect anything. <laughs> and it's, it's a source of a lot of anxiety for people. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, we're all living beings and we all live rich and complex emotional lives. Um, and behavior is influenced, like you said, by, I mean, an infinite potentially number of factors and combinations of, right, like genetics and health and previous injuries and what are they eating and, you know, are they sleeping enough? How well are they sleeping? When are they sleeping? Endless things that influence moods and decision making. Um, so definitely cutting yourself slack, cutting your dog slack, um, and none of us are robots. <laughs> Um, and at the end of the day, I think the most important thing to prioritize is your relationship with your dog and meeting your dog's needs and meeting your needs. I love that. Thank you so much for that share, Aggie. And, um, you know, I think as a reminder, if anyone wants to, they can continue to follow Flora's journey on our Rover success stories on our mm -hmm. website. Uh, we continue, she, she's on there, her little portfolio is on there and we continue to upload her wins and her success story, because, um, I think that the, the real reason why I do these interviews with our guardians is because I think that it's good to hear other guardians speaking about their experiences, because even if you're not in the RP, even if you're not one of my clients, you, you know, you can relate to everything, almost everything Aggie has said today. Right. And that is such a personal experience. And I want you to feel like you're not alone. And there are other guardians that are going through that same experience as you. And it's also very beneficial to see a guardian who's a year ahead, right? Like graduates really finished out their time in the RP, started finishing out their formal training lessons a year ago, and have just been implementing and implementing and, and they're in the future is brighter right? She's not thinking about Flora as a quote unquote reactive dog. She thinks of Flora as a dog who has experiences, who lives in a universe that wasn't quite designed for domesticated dogs, right? <laughs> um, so there's a lot of factors and variables that come in play there. So thank you so much, Agneta, for sharing your story with Flora. And uh, we're just going to wrap up right here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dog Liaison Podcast. Support for this episode came from the Recovering Rover Program. Go to getacomdog.com to learn how you can treat your dog's anxiety. And you can support this podcast by leaving a review and sharing. I appreciate your continued support, and I'll see you in the next episode.